Welcome to Lectionary Call-In for Tuesday, October 24th of 2023, where laypersons and pastors gather each week at 6.30 a.m. Eastern Time from wherever we may be to discuss the Gospel Lectionary for the coming Sunday. This Sunday is October 29th, and we're working to be faithful to Lectionary Year A. Here's how it works. We prepare independently in advance of the discussion after receiving some formative questions from the week's leader, and then in this podcast we share question, and challenge each other. And here are the folks joining us in today's discussion. Bill Hall in Pleasant, 71 degrees, St. Petersburg, Florida. Sarah Mickelson in Tampa, where it's 67. I'm Don Upton in Charlotte, North Carolina, where it's 43. (laughs) (laughs) And our lead this week, and we're, we're thankful you're our leader for this fascinating and uh, precious passage. Uh, Sarah Mickelson, she's going to read the scripture and guide us through some formative questions. Hello, my friend. I hope you're doing fine in that freezing cold Tampa. Well, it is nice to occasionally have to put on socks. So, here we are. Uh, welcome, everybody. I'm glad you're here. This is such a great conversation, and um, we are in Matthew, yet again, following on the heels of last week's conversation, we're looking at Matthew, we're still in chapter 22, this week we're looking at verses 34 through 46. We've skipped a couple of past um, uh, scripture readings, or I should say we've skipped some um, parts of this particular chapter where Jesus and the Sadducees exchanged their conversation about the resurrection. Um, but we are now picking up again with a conversation that Jesus is having in the temple, probably with a group of people, including the Pharisees. Um, so starting with verse 34, when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest commandment. And and a second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them this question. What do you think of the Messiah? Whose son is he? And they they said to him, the son of David. And he said to them, How is it then that David, by the Spirit, calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David thus calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one was able to give him an answer nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. The power of good questions on display. So I have three questions around this particular reading. Um, The first is, why interrogate Jesus about which commandment in the law is the greatest? The second question is, why does Jesus interrogate the Pharisees by asking whose son is the Messiah. And my last question, um, how are these questions related to each other, 
and the previous testing questions that have been presented to Jesus. What do these exchanges expose or open up for us? So we go back to question number one, and Bill, I'm coming to you with this. Why interrogate Jesus about which commandment in the law is the greatest? Thank you for the question, Sarah. And I will get to your specific question, but first a couple of observations. I think this may be an example of unintended consequences because even it struck me for the first time this go-round, even though the question is characterized as a test, it was an absolutely essential issue to explore. It's saying, in effect, what somebody has said there are 630-some-odd commandments in the Hebrew Scriptures. Um, And in effect, this question, though I I don't think the questioners as portrayed here intended this, what is it all about? What does this boil down to? And based on some of my readings and my thoughts, uh, an example would be the Bill of Rights and the Constitution. The Constitution was established. Then these Bill of Rights were added to, as it were, as based on my understanding, hey, let, let's be clear what all of this Constitution is about in this experiment in um, democracy. Jesus' golden rule and the Sermon on the Mount help distill the essence of the law and the gospel. And I've gone a number of weeks without referring to my favorite book of the Bible, the book of James. (laughs) So I will give myself permission to mention it again, where in the first chapter, James says, religion that is pure and undefiled before the God the Father is this, to care for orphans and widows in their distress and keep oneself unstained by the world. I would paraphrase it as James is saying, our faith in God is to shape and guide our behavior toward other human beings, especially the vulnerable. To use a more modern phrase, it's a faith formation. How, how does our faith form and shape our actual behavior? And the two statements in the Old Testament quoted by Jesus come from two separate sources, Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19. Leviticus passages in this week's lectionary. Yet Jesus presents them as, as existentially one command to use a, a musical phrase. You can't have one without the other. They are inextricably linked, though originally they were put in two different books of the Hebrew Scriptures. Um, And then to make this compiling, this coupling clear, Jesus says in verse 40, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Now, another thought that occurred to me this time for the first time, why does he say law and prophets? The law is what we are called to be and do The prophets call us out when we deviate or compromise what the commandments tell us to do. So Jesus is saying, folks, this is it. 
this is the summation of what faith is about. Now, the interrogator's intent is to test and trap Jesus. Um, and your question is, why did they interrogate Jesus? Well, the scripture says they're seeking to test and trap him. And it reminds us we can come to scripture to argue with it or to listen and learn. That's what I got for the moment, Sarah. Thank you, Bill. Don, what are your thoughts about this? Why Why is Jesus... Why are they interrogating Jesus about which law is the greatest? Well, it's a, I think it's a worthy inquiry. Uh, and if that's the case, then I, I think it's an exploration of the hearts of the inquirer. We get the answer. Jesus does not evade. He goes right in. By the way, Jesus is quite silent in Matthew when he is subjected to uh, torture and uh, the trial. So he's speaking now. Jesus is not necessarily speaking like this in another situation, but his words will be held against him. So uh, I think it's it's worthy, and through time, here it is, delivered to us. Everything hangs on this. So what? It's, so I think, Sarah, your question is actually in two pieces. One is why interrogate? Why do we interrogate our hearts? Why? And then why do we interrogate Jesus? It's like two parts. So on the first part, the interrogation, why do we do that? Just for neutrality, we're, we're asking questions about something that we want to analyze. We want to go deeper. And it could be in criminal justice. It could be just what we do over the dinner table. But it's in, the, it's in our hearts to go deeper, peel back the onion, more, give me more. And so your heart could be in that way. Now, it, it gets weighed a little bit because some people want to do it uh, in order to just discover things. It's an act. As a matter of fact, that's the term of law. You know, it's part of a discovery process. Sarah, you work in a law firm. You know, what are you doing? There are interrogatories that are written in order to get to the facts, in order to get to the truth, in order to understand what's happening. Peel back the onion, uh, in order to prove something to be true. But I could also say, in order to ruin someone, in order to corner someone. So it's really broad sense, and it goes to what's in our heart. Why are we asking? And I think in this case, uh, you know, it's been made clear the intent is to corner or to ruin or to trap somebody. But Jesus rides through. <laughs> Jesus is going to answer these questions. These are core questions, and I guess no matter what the heart of the questioner is, this comes down through 2,000 years. No matter what their heart was, we have the answer. Everything hangs on these two things. Everything hangs. He will answer. He will not God cannot be evaded. The Son of Man cannot be evaded. And so, and I think in terms of peeling things back, the healthy side of it is, you know, it's like, uh, well, we already know you're a musician. What kind of musician? What do you play? Well, I play a guitar. Let's talk some more. How long have you played the guitar? What kind of guitar do you play? I play flamenco. Are you any good at it? I mean, there's this natural peeling back. Uh, but in this case, you know, the heart, the reason is tough. Now, why interrogate Jesus? Looking at this and the other passages relate to the interrogation, and I think this would be good for a class discussion, I think to see whether or not he has the audacity to speak for God. That's a no-no. To see if he is interpreting properly for God in context. That's a no-no-no. Uh, and then one that I think works in current day and probably any time through human history, 
The human heart in a dark corner really likes rankings or ordering things. First of all, are you acting like God if you're putting things in order? So gotcha there too, except the answer is just delightful. Uh, but you know, think of anything. You know, well, in American culture today, why do people go, well, give me your top ten? That, that is not really to reach a sense of excellence and truth. It's meant to start a fist fight. <laughs> and so just the idea of ranking, I think, sometimes should stand out like, all right, you're parsing. Let's see. And if you rank things, it'll disclose your lack of authority, your lack of knowledge, your lack of research, your lack of expertise, your lack of due diligence. So if they try to corner them, of course, they get this elegant, truthful, majestic answer about everything that hangs. But the intent, no matter what the intent of the heart is, Jesus. No matter what, Jesus. It pops out. So I, I think with the ranking, it's like God's laws, the, the intent may be to uh, – See if this is a person that's trying to parse God's law, you know, and then the answer is just irresistible and beautiful. So I think a good way to go at it is why interrogate? Why do we do it? What's in our heart? And then why interrogate Jesus? That's what I've got there. You know, it's interesting to me. Um, thank you, Don. Um, Bill, you referenced this loosely, but there are 613 Jewish laws that are built upon the dialogue between God and the the people in the Old Testament. Um, Jesus cites the Shema, which is Deuteronomy, that chapter of Hero Israel, Hero Israel, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your heart, your, your God with all your heart, your soul, and your strength. Um, Matthew shifts that conversation to mind, which is interesting. Um, Mark Davis notes, and this was this was a nice little identif- um, I should say a moment of epiphany for me. It's still a marvelous question, which opens up the possibility that even devious intent may lead to marvelous teaching. And I I liken this question to a cooking example that there are mother sauces and mother sauces are are foundational work or sauce work that any number of additional sauces are built from. So I go back to this idea of keystone, this idea of cornerstone, this idea of foundation and we can aggregate all of the laws together, and they come up with these. Jesus says, you shall love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and you should love your neighbors yourself. And those are, if you do these things, the other 611 laws fall naturally into place. So I'm kind of like this is helpful to me because if I love God I'm not going to I'm not going to worship an idol. If I love God I'm not going to blaspheme or use his name in vain. If I love my neighbor I'm not going to covet. I'm not going to murder. I won't slander. So these are all things that are natural results of these two laws. And I think that's for me super helpful. Um and I'm grateful that that they're here. 
I'm grateful that we have Jesus saying these words here because it helps me stay clear. And I think for the body of people who might be listening in the temple at this time, this is super helpful to them because they may not have had access to it before. Maybe they don't read. Maybe they're dependent upon other people interpreting for them. So that, for me, is an indication of, of, of accessibility. And Jesus is giving an on-ramp right here for everybody. That leads me to my second question, Don, coming to you. Why does Jesus interrogate the Pharisees by asking whose son is the Messiah? Uh, I... I think there are a lot of ways we could go with this. I'm going to choose something helpful, that Jesus is not using the discovery, the discourse, find facts with which to beat them. <laughs> he's, not, he's not taking this going, here's another fact, and I'm, 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 going, to, I'm going to hit you with this. I, I think it is meant to be, in very unusual conditions, helpful. And, and it is a culture of discourse. It's, it's like something you know, we should, I think we should be attracted to, instead of like being wary it's like you, know, you can walk through those doors of discourse, and wonderful things can happen, even under trying conditions. So I'll say he is uh, he is encouraging new thinking, even though the hearts may not be in the right place. And we've all been there. Those moments of clarity, where the basic assumptions that we make about our lives and the order of the universe are upset which allows us to continue a conversation. And I think this is a conversation that continues for the hours to come, the next days, after Jesus is tried, after the resurrection, through the church today, and the earth today. I think, I think this is, he's trying to get the conversation on the right platform. And so the example I would give, and I would encourage anybody to just think about when were there points of upset where the basic assumptions that you had were removed, and you accepted that, or you began accepting that it could be another way of thinking. He does not wipe out the idea of the Messiah at all. That's not what he's doing. But there's a sense of ownership and fixed assumptions he wants to do. So I'll give two examples. One would be Galileo Galilei, who dealt with uh, uh, Copernican heliocentrism, which is basically like the universe is not in our, our solar system is not the way you think it is. And it's very difficult to absorb that, and he's put under a house arrest. But over time, he begins whittling away of that. The examination, what you see through your telescopes, the computations that you're making are changing, are changing, are changing. I'm using that as a, a kind of a micro of what's happening with Jesus, that, that there's a change, there's a shift of foot in terms of how we're looking at what God is doing in the world, what God's love is supposed to do. i give you another example, and everybody has these in their heart. It's like, you know, I grew up in a world where the history of much of the population was not in my textbook. There was only a page that indicated there was some capital invested in human beings called slavery. Now, what a delight, you know, as I'm maturing, and I'm seeing that the people that call this country America, you know, there's an extraordinary tapestry of this, of this United States that is tangible now. It's exciting, right? Story by story, fact by fact. The Great Migration, 
the entrepreneurship, the leadership. I was just so exciting, really exciting. I want more. I want more. You know, it's not like it's settled. It's like, not settled. I've got more books to read, more things to talk about, more discourse. But the foundation had to be moved, you know, which had, it's so limited, so limited. So I think Jesus is trying to, to flip those things. And uh, there's no ownership of the Messiah is the other key thing I think he's saying. It's like there's no ownership here. So, so much hangs on the ability to talk about the Messiah. So much hangs on all things are God. In the beginning, God created, which is where we were last week with the coin. Give to God what is God. Give to Caesar what is Caesar. All things are God. All things are God. So I think yeah, here's, here's Jesus, even in difficult times with folks that really don't have good intent about what the examination is supposed to be going, I think I'm going to chip away at that. And for some of you, I may be able to remove all of that so we can get on with the discussion that matters most. That's what I've got, Sarah. Oh, thank you, Don. So what are your thoughts? Why does Jesus interrogate the Pharisees about whose son the Messiah is? Uh, my preface, Sarah, is that over the years, this particular portion of Scripture has puzzled me somewhat, and I'm still puzzled. But I will share what came to me as I thought, and and I particularly read a number of other commentaries on this, and all of them were helpful. But here's what came into view for me. This is stating the obvious. The Jews who were challenging Jesus and those who followed Jesus, both groups believed in a Messiah. That There was not conflict over that. The question is the nature of the Messiah, which, again, is a very important issue. The Jewish people of faith believed and today believe the Messiah is yet to come, and the followers of Jesus believe that the Messiah is present here and now in the person of Jesus Christ. Um, Jesus's question, as as I understand the answer of the Pharisees, is that they think the Messiah is the son of a human being, David. Jesus's response affirms that the Messiah is from God. We as Christians believe Jesus is the son of God. Now, that doesn't answer all the questions and is not the the final word, but at least for me as one who wants to be and seeks to be a follower of Jesus Christ, it is essential to know that while Jesus was born of a human woman, as we say in the Apostles' Creed, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He is both human and godly and and divine. Um, Why Jesus asked them, I'm not certain, other than a clarity about the nature of the Messiah. Thank you for the question. It it drew my heart and my eye into conversation about what was the Messianic expectation? And and what's the lineage from which the Messiah emerges, right? Don, in, in our conversation before we started the call, you shared that um, it, 
that your family shared similar icon drawing on paper when they're taking notes and things like that. And this interesting discovery was that you and your daughter share similar um, visual clues to yourselves that tell you how to flow through notes and how to what punctuational what this particular idea is a big idea, and and that you hadn't compared note taking before, and and was surprised to discover you have similar traits in that that you hadn't taught to her, but she just adopted. So I think that there's this sense of 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 lineage and legacy that's being explored here. And it seems like the Pharisees are are pretty convinced that the the legacy is going to be that of David, the throne of David, the kingdom of David, the zenith in in the idea of being the best possible ruler is in their minds David. And and Jesus is kind of jarring into that a little bit because if the best we can do is human-based, then what God is up to is going to be undermined by that expectation. So it's difficult to set the table with a really, really profound meal if the best meal you've ever had has been chicken McNuggets, right? And so you've got to you've got to bring the palate into this understanding of that is temporary food, and we want to move towards something that's handmade and sustainable and interestingly prepared and and it's done with love. And I'm not sure chicken McNuggets aren't made with love, but I'm thoughtful about the kind of meals that have been that I've experienced that have been made with a lot of love. And chicken McNuggets kind of fall short. No offense, McDonald's. But this idea of if you're used to fast food and somebody finally puts a plate down in front of you that's a well-prepared meal, that your palate is going to go, wow, that's a very different experience. So I think that there's that backdrop to this passage. Um, the other thing is, in, in Mark Davis's October 22nd blog entitled The Great Command and the Work of, Jesus, uh, the Work of Christ, asks if the temple is the place to look for God's activity. I think that's a really interesting, profound moment. In the temple explanation, or the, the temple as we've been offered the glimpses in through Matthew and Mark and Luke, does the temple's structure and how it behaves and functions really speak to how God works in the world? And, and I don't know that that's an example of God's activity that we want to replicate. Um, there are two ways of thinking here that seem to be proposed. First is this historical idea of progeny exceeding ancestry. And that tradition of thought suggests or, pro- or proposes that a son could probably never exceed the greatness of his father. And that a father would not expect to give authority like that to his son, right? We see Herod struggling with this in the Herods that follow him. Um, And so if the Messiah is God's son, however, the throne, the kingdom, and the rule look different 
and are changed. And the reach of them, the scope of them is much larger. So my question is, do the Pharisees get to attach this idea of Messiah being based on the divinic, the divinic idea? And is that, an, is that an idol unto itself? And does Jesus call us out when we make religion our idol? And, and I'm, I'm of the opinion that Jesus does. And I think Jesus challenges us to go, wait, what's your religion based on? Your idea of power or God's profound reach and offering? So that was my kind of thinking around that question. Um, the third question is, how are these, these questions and the ones that we've walked through in the last couple of weeks, how are these how are these questions presented to Jesus, and what do these, um, what do they teach us, or expose for us, or open up for us? These questions that Jesus addresses with the people inside the temple in the last three or four weeks. So, how are these questions related to each other, and the previous testing questions that Jesus addresses? And then, what do these exchanges expose or open up for us? What do you think, Bill? I, I appreciate this question because you're helping us step back and look uh, at the big picture of recent weeks. Uh, by my accounting, there are four, and you note, you've noted already that one of them is left out. It occurs in year C in the lectionary in Luke when we study the 20th chapter. The first question I note is, by what authority, Jesus, are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? Second question, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And then the question about the resurrection and then today, what commandment in the law is greatest? Um, while this occurred to me this time also, while we would not want to emulate the questioner's motives, to trap, to ensnare, to embarrass, or whatever. We can draw from this that Jesus can be questioned. My years as a pastor reminded me frequently, and even in retirement, that people have a lot of questions, a lot of concerns, a lot of doubts. I love the father of the besieged son. Jesus, I believe, Help my unbelief. Uh, and Paul Clark, a couple of years ago, did a great series of classes on the gift of doubt. Um, what is it? Frederick Beatner who said, doubts are the ants in the pants of faith. <laughs> so that's one inference. Um, and um, each week, our discussions are shaped by questions on this podcast. Don, in his introduction, reminds our listeners and viewers, we came to this discussion with some preparation shaped by the leader of that week offering uh, questions. And often we acknowledge that we are not certain of the full meaning of the scripture that we are discussing, yet the questioning and exploring may open new avenues of awareness. So in a sense, Sarah, my point is that no matter what the motives of these people, 
they model for us that Jesus can be questioned. He, he can be challenged. He never says to them, you have no right to ask this. He doesn't, it didn't indicate that he interrupted and talked over them. He accepted their question. His response went in a way they didn't want, but nevertheless, the question was okay. And even the disciples of Jesus questioned him, Lord, what did that parable mean? Uh, what's in it for us? Uh, a number of questions that the disciples answered. And again, Jesus responded often probably not the way the questioner wanted, but nevertheless, the question was honored. Um, now, ordinarily, th- this was an, another new insight for me. Ordinarily, portions of the gospel are included, of a gospel are included in others. And I will note for us usually parallel passages. There are parallels this week in Mark 12 and Luke 10, but they are significantly different in form and tone. Frederick Dale Bruner characterizes Matthew's account as, quote, fierce competition, and he characterizes Mark and Luke's narratives of these questions as dialogue. In Mark and Luke, Jesus commends the questioner's answers. I am not sure how to resolve these differences in narration other than to assume that maybe more than one time Jesus was approached, and in some instances, an individual member of an oppositional group sincerely was searching, and Jesus honored this person's exploration. Let me give you an example. Um, He says in Mark at the end to the questioner, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And in Luke, you have given the right answer, do this, and you will live. You you get a sense of the difference in tone. Um, And each time Jesus was challenged, his response turned the attention and challenged back on the questioner, as is true for us also. Um, A long time ago, I mentioned something I learned as a senior in college in history seminars the leader said there were three questions we should ask of any piece of literature or historical document. What did the author say? What did it mean? And the third and most important question was, so what? What difference does this make? And a final note, uh, in the lectionary for many Christians, this coming Sunday, October 29th, is also Reformation Sunday a time when we remember the struggles of our faith ancestors to recapture something more of the essence of the gospel. And the model mantra of the Reformation in Latin was reformata semper reformanda. A Latin teacher tells me that that means reformed, always being reformed. Thank you, Sarah. So, for me, um, the course of human development, as from infant to adult, I'm kind of using that as a map, um, gives us our, our, our gives us a roadmap for understanding our place and our relationship to this world. 
So in the beginning, I'm, I'm learning that these fingers belong to this hand, and this hand belongs to this arm, and this arm belongs to this body. So when I chew on these fingers, there's an understanding developed in my brain that, oh, those are my fingers. So that's kind of like the beginning of human development. I think that these questions help us negotiate where we fit in the world. So for me, these exchanges uncover essential questions. What is my relationship to power? What is my relationship to government? What is my relationship to money? What is my relationship to aging and death? What is my relationship to what are the essential pieces of life? And so these exchanges give me a model of thought or comfort when I start to question, what do I, how do I fit? I can look to these scriptures and go, oh, this is how I fit. This is my understanding. This is where I this is where I can dig in and go, I connect to my creator here. And I think that's one of the beauties of having these testing questions that Jesus not only gives us, if you will, a, a, an opportunity or an exchange where humanity asks the divine, what are what is this? How do we work with this? If, if the motives are, might be different than mine. But I have these as examples. I have these as red threads I can hang on to to kind of map my path through to something more meaningful. And so for me, it's helpful to have this dialogue back from Jesus that offers me scaffolding I can hold on to as I start to craft and build and, 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 and understand my relationship to the Creator. And, and for me, these help expose my inability to understand. It helps me open myself up to a bigger understanding or a better understanding. And it offers me um, a way to exchange information with other people from a teaching perspective. So although the motives are different, it's super helpful to have these and have these recorded in writing in all three Gospels in some cases to see the broad spectrum of how we walk to the divine and ask questions. And the fact that the divine entertains the questions in response is huge to me. So what do you think, Don? How are these questions related to each other and the previous testing questions that are posed before Jesus? And what do these exchanges expose or open up for you? Well, I just touching on what both of you are talking about, that uh, the, the we should be bold in asking and bold in answering, and that time moves on. Uh, this is the same scripture that has Peter being asked during uh, the incarceration and examination of Jesus, are you one of his? And the answer is no. I know not that man. Now, does, does that change as he confronts that? Yes, it does. It changes. Uh, so I think the living in a world of question and examination is scary, but what's scarier is if somebody owns that, if somebody is purporting to curate a relationship with the creator, purporting to curate how we relate to each other uh, when everything hangs on it. Um, it's someone who purports to curate how we are allowed to question each other. Uh, and I think if, you know, if we were doing a class on this and somebody said, well, why don't we have an opening prayer? It wouldn't be a prayer of, 
our Lord and our God, help us be in line with the cultural norms and the examinations for which we've been handed down through the generations. That would not be the prayer. The prayer would be a prayer of openness. Open up to us. The word, open up to us what it is to love. Teach us what it is to love. Help us confront the facts that you will deliver to us about the Messiah. I mean, all those things. It's a prayer of openness, not of curation. It's not a prayer of, you know, help me not to say the wrong thing. And I think there's some fundamentals in this about, about how that would work. Yeah, it could be kind of scary, but, you know, what is Jesus facing here? The trial is just pages away in this. You know, there's an examination where Jesus is actually silent. Uh, so, you know, and this is going to be associated with torture and death, execution. Uh, but he rides through on those things. So it's a question of who's curating that relationship with the, with the creator. And I think the answer is Jesus, but it's, Jesus is the God of inquiry. Who are you? What are you thinking? What are you doing? This Matthew, what are you doing? What are you doing today? What are you planning to do today? It's helpful. Uh, also, I think Jesus under these circumstances says there are things that must be said. Uh, Peter's deeply embarrassed by not saying what needs to be said. But he learns. He learns how to say it and what it is. Uh, I'm using Galileo as an example. He could say, you know, it's, it's kind of as plain as the hand in front of your face. I got to teach you how to use a telescope, and you may need to learn some mathematics. But uh, you know, the truth is the truth, and it must be said. And he he, he said it. Uh, so I think uh, uh, the exchanges that are delivered through this behavior, through this way of the following of the way, that's, he's setting the stage for what it's like. And you know, under these difficult circumstances, I have them. 2,000 years later, I have the answer. Because of this story, I can say everything hangs upon it. And now I'm asked to examine what that means in my life and what we're doing. I'm, I'm ex- excited by that. But there's also the basic human trait, the human condition, that I, and I'll wrap up with this, that we, we're asked to be wary of, that the relationship we want with the creator. Uh, we want clarity and confidence and consistency, just like anything else. And who purports to give that to us? Uh, the clarity and the confidence and the consistency. You know, Bill, sometimes that, for humans, it, it creates, a, for, I mean, I'm thinking of using Jonah, a vain idolatry, one of you raised idolatry, but what I want, my power to create, who the creator is and what the creator is supposed to be doing. And it looks like, and that sure smells like confidence and clarity. You know, in politics, we might call it fascism. Well, somebody's delivering to me something that's clear and confident <laughs> and it's consistent. I like, oh, that sounds good to me. Uh, it could create a theocracy. And, you know, and so I think this, there's a reminder in here about what's in all of our hearts. And I could stand across from Jesus in that temple, and there I am going, well, let's get it right once and for all. It is a test. Let's get it let's get it right. I'll give you permission to get it right, but you better get it right. That's what I've got, Sarah. And with that, I know we're just about out of time, but before we say goodbye, just to see if there's any loose ends or any final comments uh anybody wants to provide. Great. Great. Well um uh, as we wrap up, we've been hearing a lot from our listeners the last week, and I just want to I, I all of us we talked before this podcast was recorded and 
uh, I, I think I speak for all three of us. We thank you. We thank you for your insights, your ask for clarifications, even your technical <laughs> comments. Bob. Oh, that was a, can quite hear you this week. So we, we listen we listen very carefully and we really delight in the criticism and the encouragements that you give us. Uh, the Palmacy of Presbyterian Church makes this podcast possible. Uh, they're at 3501 West San Jose. That's in Tampa, Florida. For more information, you can go to palmacia.org. That's P-A-L-M-A-C-E-I-A.org. We commend that site to you always for more conversations about lectionary, uh, including the other parts of the lectionary. I think the epistles are being discussed this week. Uh, disagreements, questions, <laughs> inquiries, uh, confronting confronting new ideas. Uh, so we commend that to you along with great prayers, sermons, opportunities to take communion and music. And you're always welcome. And we will see you next time.